This is our opportunity to come to the book of Colossians. And while you have a handout, the uh, text of today's handout is only the first two verses. So you may want to have your actual Bible open, something unusual. (laughs) I hope you have one with you. Because I'll be referring to some other passages as backdrop or background to Colossians. Whenever you start an introduction to a new book of the New Testament, or the Bible for that matter, you like to approach the topic a bit like a journalist with the who, what, when, why, where, and how questions. Um, I'm not going to take them in that order because you now have a handout in front of you that has a map and that's all you're looking at. Uh, so why don't we start with the map so that you, we all just kind of place this in its geographic context, then we'll place it in its historical context and its theological context. So why don't we work it that way? Okay, as you look at your handout, the first map on the first page Can you find Colossae? It's basically the middle, south middle of Turkey. If you know what Turkey looks like. Um, You kind of see it there right next to what? What's the other town that's there? Laodicea. So this is all of Asia Minor, which we call Turkey today. In fact, if you look up near the top, the, the sea, the Black Sea, where the words New Testament churches sits. You see that little isthmus in the middle with the little dividing line in between the two lands? That's where Istanbul is today, or Constantinople as we know it historically. Well, that just kind of puts things in a, a bit of a historical context for you. Now, I put a little question in the upper right-hand corner of your map just because I can. Um, Can you find the seven churches of Revelation chapter 2 on this map? I guess the first question is, do you know what the seven churches are (laughs) of Revelation? The first one is Ephesus. Okay, so find Ephesus. All right. The second one is Smyrna. So you go up a little bit north, then Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and the seventh is Laodicea. Now you notice when I when we rattle them off in order, they create a circle. That's intentional because the idea was for them to be circulated around between the churches. And so the messenger would go from one to one to one and read it. Now, Laodicea is only 10 miles away from Colossae. So why wasn't Colossae included? I mean, isn't it important? I mean, Laodicea, Laodicea does not have a letter in the New Testament, but Colossae does. Hmm, interesting. Well, let's, we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. One of the challenges 
in our New Testament studies and our New Testament background is that we have absolutely no record of Paul ever visiting Colossae. It's not in Acts. It's never mentioned in Acts. And yet, we have this extraordinary letter to the people of this church written by Paul, but it's not recorded that he founded the church or even visited the church there. Now, there's been... Let's just say there's been a lot of master's theses and doctoral theses granted to scholars as they explore these questions. And um, the chart you see at the bottom of your handout on the first page is one from a commentary by William Hendrickson. I actually took a picture of his map and posted it here. So sorry, Mr. Hendrickson, I have broken every copyright law known to man. But I think it's helpful for you all to see this in that he suggested that Paul did visit Colossae, but he didn't stay there other than maybe overnight. So you can see in the Paul's third missionary journey on his outbound route, he started in Antioch of Syria on the far right, and then he comes up through Tarsus, his hometown, and through Derby, Lystra, Arconium, Antioch, Pisidia, Ampamea, and Colossae, Laodicea, and Ephesus. So you take that route, overlay it over the map at the top, and you can kind of see the route. And it would make sense, except you're kind of going, well, he went from Antioch of Pisidia, that's in Galatia, right in the middle of our, our first map, Oh, why would he have not visited there? That's where page two of your map comes in, where I have a topographical rendition of this map. It's a little hard to see because it's not in color. I really don't want to spend a dollar and a half per page for my handouts to put it in color for you. Uh, We don't have that kind of budget. However, on the far right side, you see Colossae. And the far left side, you see Ephesus. And if you follow the route, you can see it goes along a valley. That's the Lycus River. If you head east, you will find that that river valley makes its way all the way over to Antioch of Pisidia. It's a natural route to travel. It's the road uh, with least resistance, I guess would be to put it. Oh my goodness, he went out and made copies. You are such a wonderful servant. Look at that. Of course, everybody got page one. All right, we're good. Look at that. Fantastic. So, the theory that Paul would have skipped Colossae doesn't make practical sense. But by visiting doesn't mean he spent two months and founded a church. He could have just stopped there overnight because he was headed to Laodicea, which is 10 miles away. You know what it's like if you're on a long car trip and 
you know, for whatever reason, the traffic has slowed you down and you're now realizing you have to stop or you will fall asleep while you're driving. And you go, well, where we were going to stop is only 10 miles away. And you kind of go, I cannot do it anymore. Oh, look, good old Motel 6 has a light on. And I will go in and just stop because it's more convenient at that moment. The theory works. I'm not going to say that's the way it happened. But there is a very good possibility. The other challenge about Colossae is it has never been excavated. If you go out there as a tourist to visit, you can go to Ephesus and see all the columns and all the buildings been unburied, you know, and you can go to Laodicea and visit the ruins there. You can even go up to Hierapolis and visit the ruins there. And you go to Colossae and you see the picture at the bottom of the page. It's a big green mound in the middle of a field. It wasn't even discovered by archaeologists until 1835. It disappeared off of the map of history. Just gone. The entire people group moved north. In fact, you can, this, this is a picture from the south looking north. The hills you see in the very background, the entire city relocated to that town, and that's where the town is today about two or three miles away. Why? Well, there's some theories about that, which I'll, I'll get to in a moment. Apparently, archeologists for the last 150 years have been applying to the people, the government of Turkey, to let, it, let them dig into this tell, this mound, and it's never been granted for whatever reason. So who knows what's there? We assume there were synagogues there because of the record we have in the book of Colossians. There were Jews there. There's reference to Colossae in history. And I thought it was kind of fun because uh, today's sermon is in the book of Esther. And who is the king of Persia? Ahasuerus, right? What's his other name? Xerxes. Xerxes stopped in Colossae in 500 BC on his way to attack Greece. We have a record of it. It was a way station. They pulled up, went, wow, this looks like a good truck stop. We can feed our elephants. No, that was a different, that was Hannibal. <laughs> anyway, we can, we can feed ourselves. It was a by, byway if you think of that river, you go from Colossae to Laodicea, Ephesus. This was the route people would take because it's least resistance. Otherwise, you have to climb over mountains and it's a lot more difficult to travel. We also have a record that in 200 BC that Antiochus II, the Greek ruler, when he conquered portions of Babylon, What's Babylon also known as? Persia, whose king was Xerxes. Now we have Antiochus, the Greek, conquering Babylon 
and exported 2,000 Jews and stuck them in Colossae. He removed them, didn't put them in Israel, he stuck them over here. Why? Who knows? Maybe there was some sort of need for merchants or settlers or something else. But we have a record of that as well. So this town actually was a important one for hundreds of years. However, when Rome came in and started building their highways, so imagine you have a robust little side inn in Colossae, and you hear that the government is going to build a new interstate, but the interstate is going to bypass your little town. It will no longer be on Route 66. <laughs> it will be on I-17, and you will be bypassed. It's exactly what happened. When Rome came in, they built the road to Laodicea and then bypassed Colossae and took a different route. That's, that's the ligament on the I-40. Hmm? It's the ligament. The ligament. The I-40 uh, uh, came in and it's ligament just just happened. This is how society works. Now, Colossae that had its, you know, its economy was based partly on that, but it was also well known for the dye that they were able to pull out of their mountains from the chalk that was under the ground. They would mine it, and that particular chalk, when mixed with a certain chemical, would create purple. And so the purple dye of Colossae was very well known. That kind of was replaced by other industries. So that's a little bit of background of Colossae. But there's another little trivia bit here, which you have to listen to because I'm talking. <laughs> this is Earthquake Central. The reason why we can date this particular letter to the city of Colossae as accurately as we can is that in 63 AD, a massive earthquake leveled Colossae. And our book of Colossians doesn't mention anything about suffering. It doesn't mention that there was some cataclysm that the people of the, of the city were having to deal with. Within a year of this letter's writing, the city was basically knocked down, as was Laodicea. It's documented. It's well known. Now, I was you know, reading these various things about earthquakes in Turkey, and I was, you know, <laughs> I went on my wonderful rabbit trails <clears throat> and I actually looked into tectonic plates. Aren't you thrilled? <laughs> but three tectonic plates meet in this valley. It's basically earthquake central of the region. Now, you know, part, and part of my interest, of course, is my growing up and living through a massive earthquake as a child. So. Anytime I see earthquakes mentioned, I dive deep. Did you realize that yesterday, October 14th, 2023, there was a 4.7 
Richter scale earthquake in Turkey? It wasn't on the news, was it? Nobody cared in the US. It was only about 50 miles from Istanbul. 4.7, that's enough to shake the windows and maybe knock down a few cups off your, your counter, but it's probably not gonna bring down many buildings. So it's not as dangerous. The thing is, Turkey has earthquakes all the time. So I started digging in. In February of this year, anybody remember the earthquake that hit Turkey? It was southern Turkey and northern Syria. It affected a region. Hmm? Oh yeah, it affected a region the size of Germany. It affected 15 million people. 50,000 people died. It was a 7.8 earthquake. That's big, because if you remember, Richter scale is exponential. Five is double the size of four, six is double the size of five, etc. The one I was in growing up was 9.2, so I know earthquakes, personally. That was Anchorage, Alaska, 1964. I remember that in the desk. Uh, at least yeah. knows I could stop and tell you the next half hour of my <laughs> story, oh, which I have. I think you told the class the story about yeah. a couple yeah. times. Every three years. Every, every yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's time. No. <laughs> I haven't heard it. Yes. Well, <laughs> someday. <laughs> Last week they had 6.0, 6.4 in yep. Afghanistan. That's right. And destroyed. The thing is, in August 8th of 2019, in the area of Colise, was a 5.9 Richter scale earthquake. These earthquakes happen all the time in this region. So, as a people living in 60 AD, and the world starts shaking, and they don't exactly have earthquake-proof buildings, so pretty much a city can be flattened and they'll, re you know, they'll re rebuild it if there is an economic reason to do so. This is the theory of what happened to Colossae historically. It survived the one in 63 AD. You know, they rebuilt pretty much. But each time it got harder and harder to justify it because I-40 had bypassed them and the economic viability of the town came to the point where, with the last time the earthquake, people just said, we're, we're not living here anymore, we're gonna move up on the mountainside. It's safer, heck with this. And they just left, and all we are left is with their trash, burial heap, that's all that's left. Now, Laodicea rebuilt every time. In 449, or 494 BC, the city was completely flattened and they rebuilt it. Back in 60 um, AD, it had a severe earthquake and the Roman, this is the one that hit Colossae as well, the Roman government reached out to them and said, we're willing to send you help. You know, we are the government, we will help. 
And the people of Laodicea actually refused. <laughs> we don't need your help. We're a wealthy people. Could you imagine what kind of strings were attached? You know, well, we'll raise your taxes, but we'll take care of you. Well, the taxes go up, but then they never go down. It's like the city of Chicago. There was a special tax voted by the people to increase their sales tax revenue in order to build the Olympic stadiums so that they could win the bid to host the Olympics. They did not win the bid. The tax has not gone away because it got voted in. Um, you're, you know how that works. I mean, as our Paradise Valley government person. Yeah, economy, 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 temporary sales tax for police and fire services only, and it's still there. It's still there. Temporary. A temporary, well, defined temporary. It's between now and the next millennium. Yeah, anyway. Laodicea was a wealthy town, remember? They were on the I-40. They got all the benefit of the region. The reason why I brought up Revelation chapter 2, let me read you the quote of Revelation chapter 2 about Laodicea. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The people of Laodicea were so wealthy, they didn't need the government help to rebuild. They didn't need help from anybody. And that became part of their condemnation as a people and as a church. Isn't that interesting? Now that we know the background of Earthquake Central, you get a better feel of what's going on. All right. <clears throat> giving you enough geographic trivia to last your entire lifetime. <clears throat> there will be a quiz next week. I will not be here to administer the quiz, but there will be a quiz next week. All right. There is no other book of the New Testament that displays the greatness of Jesus with such lofty language as Colossians. Charles Swindoll says, your view of Jesus Christ will impact every area of your life. Many people today want only practical instruction and helps for living. They eschew esoteric topics like doctrine or theology because doctrine and theology seems to be out of touch with their everyday reality. Paul's view is different. He saw that the Christological problems in the Colossian church had practical importance. Believers had died, have died with Christ and therefore we need to die to our sins. We have also been raised with Christ, therefore we must live well in Him and put on qualities that are motivated by Christian love. Because He is Lord over all, the life of the Christian is a life of submission to Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says, the message of Colossians is so greatly needed today. Quote, I hear too many voices telling me I need something more than Jesus Christ, some exciting experience or some new doctrine, some addition to my Christian experience. 
But Paul affirmed that what I actually need is simply to appropriate what I already have in Christ. Quote, you are complete in Him. End quote. I also hear voices that want me to want to judge me and rob me of the glorious liberty I have in Christ. How encouraging is it to hear Paul write, quote, let no man beguile you, let no man spoil you, let no man judge you, end quote. The fullness of Christ is all that I need and all we and all man-made re- regulations and disciplines cannot replace the riches I have in God's Son. Do we have this heresy in our church today? Yes, we do. And it's just as deceptive and dangerous as it was back in the early church. When we make Jesus Christ and the Christian revelation only a part of the total religious system or philosophy, we cease to give him preeminence. And isn't it interesting that Pastor Jim's sermon this morning, speaking of pride, says that no matter how you look at it, if all you are looking at is yourself, you're not giving Christ preeminence. And that's exactly what he said this morning. So I'm listening to that and I'm going, uh, you're stealing my thunder, buddy. It's right in my notes here. This is what and how the totality of the Christian message is consistent whether you're speaking and teaching the Old Testament in Esther and the New Testament in Colossians. The consistency is breathtaking. Mm -hmm. Now, this particular book is only four chapters long. Any guesses to how many words are in this chapter? Or in this book? Just take a wild guess. 1,273. Hmm? 1,273. In about 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you read slowly, might I suggest you do so? And if you don't have someone to read it out loud, or you, you know, it's a challenge for you, you can go online to esv.org, the ESV translation, open it up to Colossians and click the audio button and the computer will read it to you using Max McLean's recording of the ESV. He's a wonderful, wonderful uh, voice. And you can just listen to it in its totality and then kind of step away going, whoa, have I ever really heard it like this before? No, it's because we tend to pick and choose pieces and miss the totality of it. My suggestion is to do that at least once in these few weeks that we're going to be in this in this letter so that you will experience what the church of Colossae experienced when they heard it read to them for the first time as many of them were illiterate they couldn't read 
It was the only way it could be expressed, is that someone would stand up and read this letter from Paul to this church. Just a suggestion. So the question comes up often is, if Paul is the author, well, where did he write it from? Well, we know it was written from prison. That's evident. It says so in the book. But which prison? Now, it's kind of obvious where I've landed on this question because our chronological attempt to work through the, the Bible has him in Rome in prison right now, if we were to follow our trail. <clears throat> but there are a lot of theories out there that Paul was in prison more than once. And could it be, <clears throat> now that you're looking, excuse me, <clears throat> now that you're looking at your map, you can see the proximity of Ephesus. Could it be that Paul wrote the book of Colossians from Ephesus? That's one pretty big theory because he was in Ephesus for three years. Problem is, we have no record of him being imprisoned while in Ephesus. No mention of it anywhere in the book of Acts. Yeah, there were riots, but he wasn't the one that was being attacked. It was his compatriot that was being attacked. Yes, he had his um, conflicts, but we don't have a record of him being in prison. It also throws off the entire chronology, in my mind, of the book of Ephesians. Because Ephesians was written from prison too. And you're going to see one more little reasoning why I don't feel it fits the Ephesus uh, prison time. One of the other things is that Luke is present. In, in Colossians 4.14, he says here, uh, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Problem is, we have no record of Luke being in Ephesus with Paul during that three-year period. He didn't meet him till later. So that throws that timeline off. And it's, it's really fascinating to read the various scholars who do some rather interesting gymnastics. They could outdo... Uh, Simone Biles. <laughs> and they are able to really go, well, okay, over here. And I'm, I'm just reading this going, really? Uh, I, I, you know, maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand your logic. But the second place that he could have possibly written this from is Caesarea. Because he was in Caesarea for two years. In jail. And we have no record at all of what he did during that time. None. Acts just simply said he was there for two years. Okay, so what did he do? I mean, we made the joke that he spent a lot of time in the, uh, the palace pool so that he could, you know, compete at the next Olympic Games. Because it doesn't say he did anything. We have no record. So the argument comes from absence. You have to be careful when you start arguing from absence. And at the same time, we've done that even here. And part of the beauty of being in a class setting is we can throw these ideas out and it's safe. We're not making a declaration or actually um, 
saying anything odd. But most likely, it's from Rome. Because he's also in Rome for two years. In prison. In, in a house prison. We have in Acts 28, verses 30 and 31, that he spent those two years unhindered in ministry. Now, it doesn't mean he was you know, able to go to the Applebee's down the street, but it did mean that he was not um, behind bars. In fact, he even said he had to pay for his own rent. So he had to rent a house, pay for it, he had visitors, he had people coming in, he was ministering. He just couldn't leave the house. He had an ankle monitor. It was called a chain. Yeah, they were very old school back then in Rome. <laughs> you know, it was a little, little more challenging. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's very fascinating to me, and you're going to need your Bible for this one. Look in Ephesians... Chapter 6, verse 21 with me. Okay. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. It reads, So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, or Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I'm, I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. All right, fine. Now to go to Colossians 4, verse 7. Colossians 4, verse 7 says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Wait. That's the same phrase. Two different letters. Same mailman. And, oh wait, we also know that included in this letter to the Colossians was also a letter to Philemon. Colossians and Philemon are always paired together because we have Onesimus mentioned in verse 9 of Colossians 4. And the letter to Philemon about the uh, slave Onesimus, that's what the letter of Philemon is all about. So now we have three letters hand-carried by Tychicus and oh wait, there's more. Colossians 4.16 And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So that suggests there's a fourth letter. Could it be there's a lost letter? Oh, we know that there's lost letters. I mean, I highly doubt Paul only wrote 13 letters in his entire lifetime. But these are the ones that have been preserved for us, for today, by God's sovereign, his sovereignty, I guess I should finish the, uh, the, the, the phrase, his sovereignty so that we have what is intended for us to be studying. 
This suggests that Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and possibly another letter were all traveled in the same bag. Isn't that fascinating? Now, again, I'm not saying anything de definitive. I just find it interesting that both Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4 have almost the identical description of the one who's carrying the letter from Paul to the recipients. This is just for your own tickles and grins to think about. Now, I'm going to dive into something that gets a little controversial, but you'll, you'll have to stick with me here for a second. There are those who say that Paul did not write this letter. It's actually very common that Paul's authorship of letters gets thrown under the bus all the time. It's just part and parcel of those who really just don't want to accept the fact that the Bible says Paul wrote it. I mean, it does kind of start with uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ the Colossae. It kind of suggests that Paul wrote it. Now, was it a forgery? Maybe. It's not unknown. I mean, there is a book of Peter that rolls around uh, early churches, but the best guess is that it was written around 200 AD, a little bit after he was dead. <laughs> and if you read the material, some, uh, let's just say some odd stuff show up in it. So someone wrote it, attributed it to an apostle to give it authority. But there are those who say that that's what happens here with Col Colossians and also Ephesians. Here's some of the reasons. The vocabulary in Colossians is too different from any of his other letters. There are 34 Greek words that appear nowhere else in the New Testament. 34. There are 28 of them that are in the New Testament, but nowhere else in Paul's writing. So that would be a total of 62 words that are unique to Colossians. There are 10 words that are in common only with Ephesians, and 15 words that are in common with Colossians and Ephesians, but nowhere else in Paul's writings. And there are certain common Pauline words that are not found in Colossians. Uh, these are not the Greek words, these are the English translations because I would just confuse you otherwise. <clears throat> Justify, believe, and salvation. Those three words are not found in Colossians. You know, I, I can already see you going, ooh, that's not good. <laughs> Secondly, they say the style of writing here is very different from his other letters. It is described as, quote, cumbersome, wordy, and marked by a multiplicity of genitive instructions, participles, and prepositional phrases. I hope you know what that means. Um, <clears throat> 
I still want to get a license plate because I've worked part of my life as an editor and I want to have the license plate be E-D-I-T-U-R. Editor. And see if anybody notices. Anyway. Also, the error that is described in the Church of Colossae, we've, it's commonly called the Colossian heresy, <clears throat> is not a fully developed Gnosticism, as is often claimed, because Gnosticism, as historically understood, was not fully developed for another hundred years. All right. Those are some pretty big objections. So here's how you look at it. Vocabulary and style is typical of Paul's letters because when he writes to address a real-time issue, his language changes to address the issue. You have to remember, Paul was kind of smart. Like, he would run circles around every one of us in this room. He probably knew the entire Old Testament by heart. I mean, he often quotes it from the Septuagint, not even the Hebrew. He quotes it from the Greek version regularly. Just, it's almost like it just poured out of him. It was so in, integrated into his, his own mind. And I find myself, I had one person tell me that when I get upset in a negotiation that I become extremely articulate <laughs> and that certain vocabulary comes out in the conversation that I wouldn't normally use. Not meaning curse words. <laughs> but there's a situation that needs specific language to address the issue and I know the words to say to get my point across. And as someone who is in law, you know what that means. You come up, there's a situation, and sometimes you go over here and pull out your thesaurus and go, what's a better way of phrasing this? This is why so, many, so often we get into, uh, you start reading a contract and it makes no sense at all. I mean, this isn't even English. Well, yes it is, but it's not English for the normal people. I can't understand it. Well, it's language intended to be extremely precise to manage a particular situation. So Paul hears about this heresy, and we'll get into what the heresy is. And so he uses extraordinary language to identify who Christ is in light of what's being taught. He didn't have that situation when he was writing to the Galatians. He didn't have that situation when he was writing to the Thessalonians. So to say that he doesn't use the same language, man, that's, I'm sorry, that's a weak argument in my mind. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? Being an editor, and you've seen people write things over time and seen styles over time. What's your feeling just from your oh. personal experience? Is this a legitimate argument or not? Which, which argument? Well, either way. I mean, what, what, okay. what is your sense that... Do you, I'll, put, I'll put it back to you. Do you write the same way you did 10 years ago when you express things in writing? You probably and write. I don't write that much. So. 
you do this? Oh, come on, you write emails. Yeah, I mean, we... we I'm not very <laughs> Okay, well, maybe an unfair question to throw at you. But typically, writers grow and writers change. I think the perfect example of that, now that you bring it up, remember when we were at the Wade Center, which is the place that houses all of C.S. Lewis's works and all of Dorothy Sayers' works. And we were uh, visiting there, just kind of being tourists, and <clears throat> the curator for the, for the Wade Center had a group and we kind of sidled up to you know, listen in on what was going on. And the lady turned to one of the scholars at one of the tables and says, Dr. So-and-so, you want to explain to us what you're doing? And he goes, oh, sure. So he turns to us and he had multiple screens open and he had multiple original letters of C.S. Lewis handwritten in front of him that were from the vault. And he says, I'm trying to date these letters because they're undated. And I'm basing it on his handwriting and his vocabulary. And he said, for example, this one, and he had scanned it and it was up on the screen. He said, see this word and see how he phrased it. He said, that word and how that's done was very similar to this dated one. And so I can place this letter within a week. And it was an undated letter. And you want to go, man, you guys are really curious about C.S. Lewis <laughs> to spend so much time but then he made the comment. He said, C.S. Lewis's handwriting changed, but his vocabulary changed over his lifetime. And I've never forgotten that. In an argument like this, you can say, you know, it's been about five years since he wrote the book of Romans. In those five years, he's been in prison a long time. Two of them in Caesarea, at least maybe a year now in Rome. So he's maybe been in prison for three years and he's been studying, he's been praying, he's been teaching. He hasn't been out traveling because he's imprisoned. His understanding is going to grow. I would say each of us in this room has a better understanding of who Christ is today than we had 10 years ago because we have grown. If you haven't grown, you probably need to start thinking more directly about these big ideas. Because our understanding of Christ, our understanding of our Christian walk grows through time and experience and immersion in Scripture. Yeah. I was thinking it also, your vocabulary changes with who you're hanging out with. So sure. as you're hanging out with a things or as you start talking with people you start realizing I need to say this differently so mm -hmm. they understand that they, these yep. people don't think the same way as my friends back. It's very possible. So again the argument of style and vocabulary to me is a weak one. The other thing you need to always look at is the early church itself. The early church fathers all believed Paul's authorship of Colossians. It was never even brought up. And I'm talking Justin, who was around 120 uh, AD. 
Arrhenius, 150 AD, Clement, 215, Origen, 220. It's in Marcion's list of New Testament books in 146 AD and the Muratorian Canon of 170 AD. If they didn't know and had been bamboozled, then, you know, how do we trust anything? So you have this incredible line of people that said, yeah, Paul Paul wrote Colossians. The idea that Gnosticism had been fully developed well, that idea has actually been debunked in recent scholarship. There is a belief that, and an understanding, the more we understand the literature of the time, that there was a form of Jewish mysticism that was co-opting secular ideas and bringing it into the faith, creating a syncretism that was the troublesome part in the Church of Colossae. That foundational stuff, I'm not saying Jewish mysticism was a foundation of it, but that those ideas that were brought in later were full-blown into Gnosticism as we know it today. <clears throat> All right, here's another question. Why are we studying Colossians first and not Ephesians? That's because I just want to poke you. and make you think about it. Because remember, the order in the New Testament is based on length. It's not based on when they are written. So it's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, because 1st Corinthians is a little shorter than Romans. Then Galatians, then Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. It's in size not in chronological order or even theological order. So the consequence of having Ephesians first makes us think, well, we need to study Ephesians first. I found a chart that was had 42 parallel passages between Ephesians and Colossians, 42 of them. And it looks like when, and I, I was starting to, you know, pull it all together to bring it to you. It was taking me so long to look them all up. I uh, just stopped and just said, look, it's, I'll just tell you and just believe me. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a little easier. But when you start looking at the ideas, you can look at Colossians as lifting up Christ and you look at Ephesians as lifting up the church. They have very similar ideas. Number one, they've both been written from prison. They both have a common carrier. They have familiar themes. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. The ethical demands that are made, the relationships that are stressed, and there are instructions concerning prayer. Is one dependent on the other? I would say no. They both addressed a different situation. Also, I wonder if Ephesians was meant as a circular letter, a letter that would go all throughout the churches of the area. And Colossians was originally intended as a letter specifically to the church in Colossae because it's dealing with a specific issue in that church. However, my guess is, is that because they were carried together, there were those who had read them both And then you start realizing the beauty and power of Colossians, of who Christ is. We need the 
the guys in Laodicea need to hear this. This is amazing. Because remember it said, the instruction is go, go read this to Laodicea. Which meant it got read over in Hierapolis. Which meant it probably was read back in Ephesus and then Smyrna and the whole area. And it began being repeated and copied, which is why we have the book today. Now, there's one more thing that's kind of interesting if you think about it. Of all the New Testament letters, we have the Timothy, Titus, and Philemon are written to the individual. All the others are written to a city or a church. All of those were identifiable cities and well-known in the region, but only one of them is completely gone from history. Colossians, the city and town of Colossae was a footnote. If it weren't for the letter from Paul to the Colossians, we would never even be talking about this town anywhere. It would be such a side note. And a number of commentators brought this up and said, think about it for a second. In God's economy, even the smallest congregation is important. He didn't just write to the megachurches. He wrote to those in need. So when you have a church that's struggling, you know, with a hundred people, and the church, the, the pastor has to get a second job so that he can pay his mortgage, there's issues and struggles that the small churches have that the large church has no concept. The large church has struggles that the small church doesn't have either, because we're dealing with people. And just take the troubles of a small church and multiply it by a thousand. And you know, you just the human nature is human nature, and God's truth is God's truth, no matter who the audience is. So here's the question: Why was Colossians written? Well, it was written in response to a report from Epaphras. We find Epaphras in verse seven of Colossians, <clears throat> who had. From what we understand, Epaphras was a man from Colossae who probably visited Paul in Ephesus during his ministry there, became a Christian, became a believer, and then started the church in Colossae. There's trouble there. And so he has traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul and say, I've got this serious trouble. And imagine when he walks in, sitting at the table with Paul, is a slave named Onesimus from his congregation. I mean, that's one idea, is that Epaphras and Onesimus are there, and Paul is trying to tell Onesimus, you need to go back to Colossae and go with Epaphras. And the letter to Philemon went with them. Anyway, that's one. Ah, we'll come back to that theory in another day. False teaching had arisen in the church. So Paul spends verse 1 of chapter 1 until chapter 2, verse 7, 
laying the foundation of a doctrine upon which the error could be confronted. Then from 2.8 to 23, the rest of chapter 2, he confronts the error head on. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he outlines the divine, authoritative, and ethical implications of what he's doing. And what is fascinating about Colossians, he doesn't strike the error head on from the beginning. He sets the foundation of the glory of Christ first. And then he says, by comparison, what you're talking about, man, you guys got it all wrong. Instead of walking in going, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You know, you just don't understand that and just, and no, he goes for the positive approach, the lofty approach of what can be and what could be if you understood who Christ is. And then at the end, last latter part of chapter two, he confronts the error based on what he had presented. And as we work through Colossians, there's two major themes that are going to come up. One is sanctification. The idea of being fully in Christ. So you are in Christ and Christ is in you. This union with Christ concept is beautifully presented, but it's very lofty. And this is why Wearsby and Swindoll said a lot of people will look at Colossians and go, yeah doesn't apply to me. It's too heady. It just means you're not thinking hard enough about it. Because a solid theological and doctrinal foundation of Scripture will find its application in your daily life. But if you're looking for a guidebook, that's not what the Bible is. It's not a handbook. It's not a bunch of life hacks. The Bible's bigger than that. The other thing that we come to throughout the book of of Colossians is a complete and full expression of Christology, the study of Christ. Now I'm going to quote from this guy's book here, John Kitchen, his little book, Colossians and Philemon for Pastors. Um, Very well done book, but I'm just going to read you how he described this section. As to Christ's relationship to all created reality, Christ is the origin of all creation. It's number one. And that's found in verse 17. He is before all things. Second, he, Christ is the sphere of of all creation. Verse 16. By him all things are created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He is the sphere of all creation. Thirdly, Christ is the agent of all creation. This is also in verse 16. All things have been created by him. Fourth, Christ is the goal of all creation. 
All things have been created for Him. Verse 16 again. Fifth, He is the sustainer of all creation. Verse 17, In Him all things hold together. And in verse 15, He is the King of all creation. So that's six things. He's the origin, Christ is the origin of all, the sphere of all, the agent of all, the goal of all, the sustainer of all, and the king of all. That is about as lofty as you can get. And confronted by that glory, all we can do is fall on our knees in praise prayer and adoration at that moment you don't really care whether your car battery needs to be replaced it changes everything because it overwhelms our senses of who Christ is and this Creator, sustainer, glorious one sacrificed himself on the cross for us. Come on, that's impossible. That's ridiculous, which is what the world says. And those of us in this room as believers know exactly what that means. And that's why Colossians is so amazing. So I look forward to um, going into it in three weeks. Because next week, who's teaching next week? You are. And then, Andrew, you're teaching the week after that because we'll be in visiting grandchildren. Then we'll have through one service the next week. Oh, so it's four weeks. I better be prepared because I have no excuse. No time for rabbit trails. That's right. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for the chance to explore this this introduction to one of the letters you inspired Paul to write for us. Yeah, it was written for the Colossian church and the Colossian people, but it's for us, for today, for now, for this time. And in a day and age in which the enemy is tearing down everything around us and telling us that Christ is not preeminent, we need to have this reminder, and this book will help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.